Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, let's go straight to one of the newsmakers, of course, one of the main uh, key newsmakers on this, Democratic Unionist Party leader Arlene Foster. Arlene Foster, thank you so much for joining Surveillance. What does the prime minister, in your eyes, need to do to win your support in the House of Commons vote on Brexit? Well, good morning. It's uh, very good to be with you. Um, the deal that has come forward from Europe is not a deal that the Democratic Unionist Party can support. Uh, because it makes a, a difference between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom by the backstop that has been inserted in the deal. There are many good parts in the deal, such as the recognition of European citizens' rights, um, the fact that we have mutual recognition of professional qualifications. Uh, but the backstop, uh, as far as we are concerned, cannot allow us to support this deal, and therefore the backstop must go. OK, but there's a suggestion that the prime minister would agree to a common rule book between the UK and the EU, Arlene Foster, that might be enough to actually avoid barriers between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Would such a unilateral declaration be enough for you? Well, see, the difficulty for us uh, in Northern Ireland is that this withdrawal agreement, if it's accepted by Parliament, and of course there's no evidence that it will be accepted by Parliament, would bring into uh, place uh, a legally binding uh, international treaty, uh, which is then in law and is there in black and white and, and cannot be superseded. Um, our difficulty is that the political declarations that are being talked about are aspirational. They are not legally binding. And therefore, there is a real asymmetrical relationship between those two documents. Right. So I understand from what you're saying, or I'm inferring, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a unilateral declaration would not be good enough for you. We want to hear what the Prime Minister has to say, and we welcome her to this part of the United Kingdom. But we will be saying very clearly to her that she needs to get rid of the backstop. You know, this is going to be a waste of time today if she doesn't listen to what people have to say to her. And as far as I can see, uh, this is not going through Parliament. Uh, and therefore, instead of wasting time over this next uh, two weeks going on a, a PR offensive around her deal, what she should be doing is to try and find a third way forward, a deal that finds support in Parliament and a deal that will work. So we're saying to her, don't waste the time, use that time profitably and try to find a better deal. Right, but the UK government is telling us that there's no point in reopening talks because they won't budge on the backstop. Well, you know, they would say that, wouldn't they? I mean, of course people are going to hold to their line until something else has to be done. Um, and they believe that this is the best way forward. The Parliament is going to tell her something very different. OK, the DUP has already abstained in uh, important votes on government business. How likely is that to continue? Well, the, um, this deal, as I understand, is coming to Parliament uh, next week for debate and then will be voted on on the Tuesday, the 11th of December. Uh, as it currently stands, we will not be supporting this deal, and that is the case for many across the chamber, whether they are Remain voters or Leave voters. They are not going to support this deal, and therefore uh, Prime Minister is not going to get this deal through. So she, instead of wasting her time, she should actually be trying to find a way that is acceptable to everybody. Okay, I, I was uh, talking to Nikki Morgan of the Treasury Select Committee yesterday, and she was saying it's a 50-50 chance that actually we have a hard Brexit. If this deal does not get through, what do you think are, is the probability of a crashing out? 
Well, I think people are, are wanting to portray this as a binary choice between this deal and no deal. And, of course, the Prime Minister wants to portray it as that because that's the best chance for getting the deal through. We don't accept that that's the case. We say that there is a third way, a better way, a way that will get the support of the British people through their parliamentarians. And we should be looking for that way now instead of wasting time on a deal that's not going to get support. Okay, Arlene Foster, a lot of people think that the DUP is bluffing, right? That you will end up, you know, supporting this deal because you fear uh, fresh elections and Jeremy Corbyn coming in or that you will support the deal in exchange for more money. Are you bluffing? It's quite offensive, actually, to say that we are uh, going to uh, not vote against it. We are going to support this deal if we were given money for Northern Ireland. That's not what this is about. This is about the future of Northern Ireland constitutionally and economically. And therefore, we will not be supporting the deal in its current format. And by the way, if it is voted down in Parliament, that does not mean a general election, because what we have at the moment is a six-term Parliament Act, and it's only when Parliament votes for a general election that it happens. So that's a false thing to say, uh, and it is quite offensive to say that we're bluffing and that we're only holding out for money. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Arlene Foster, how do you see it? So, so if you think that this deal will be voted down, does then the Prime Minister go back to uh, the EU and get a better deal and then it gets through Parliament the second time? Or, you know, what happens after uh, December 11th? Well, we would much prefer if she looked for a better deal now instead of wasting the next two weeks on a PR offensive. Uh, we think that that would be time much better spent trying to find a better way forward and getting rid of that Irish backstop because, of course, the only reason the Irish backstop is in, we are told, is because it's there to prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland. But Leo Varadkar, the Irish Prime Minister, has said he's not going to put up a hard border. Europe says they're not going to put up a hard border. It's very strange to know who's going to put this hard border up on the island of Ireland. Um, so we have over hundreds of pages dealing with an Irish backstop that, frankly, isn't needed. But have you heard any indication from the government or Theresa May that she is willing to go back to Brussels before December 11th? And if not, what happens on December 12th? No, I haven't. Um, and uh, she is determined to proceed with her deal. She believes that her deal is the best way forward. But clearly she's not listening um, because Parliament has, was very clear yesterday uh, when she came uh, to the floor of the House of Commons that she doesn't have the support to get this deal through. Arlene Foster, thank you so much for joining us for a very valuable conversation. She is, of course, Arlene Foster. She is the UK Democratic Unionist Party leader. If you care about Lordstown, Ohio, and the other places where time will march on, according to General Motors, this is without question the interview of the day. Kevin Tynan is an auto guy. He is with Bloomberg Intelligence. But, John, what is so important about Kevin Tynan is he understands that a Chrysler Slant 6, a Dodge Slant 6, if you drop the screw into the distributor cap area where the spark plugs used to wire into, you know you will ruin your distributor and your father will not bail you out and your car won't move until you replace the This sounds like some personal experience of yours. This would be a little bit of personal experience. Kevin... I have the clearest memory of walking along the chain link fence of Rochester Delco in the early 80s when it vapored. Is that what's going to happen to these geographies? Uh, there's a there's a distinct possibility that we, we go through that kind of uh, you know Flint, Michigan, and yep. and and Rochester, and uh, but at the same time, I would say you know this this looks 
a lot like uh, General Motors clearing the deck and saying, look, this, this advance into technology, we've kind of uh, half-efforted it. So uh, let's, let's just okay. let's draw this line here and say, and, and I think you see this by them uh, ceasing production of Chevrolet Volt with a V, yet continuing the Bolt with a B, um, to say, look, the, the plug-in hybrid electric probably isn't the way forward here. We have to go full commitment right. to battery electric and still trucks, obviously, right? That's going to pay the bills right. and give them the opportunity to innovate okay. or catch up on the EV side. Before John jumps into the nuts and bolts of this, no pun intended, Kevin, I had a good friend in Flint, Michigan in 76. He said, come on, you got to hear this. And I remember sitting in a van, hearing the rumble and the roar is those wooden doors opened up out of the 1930s and 40s and everybody ran across the street to the bars. Those people weren't retrained then. Ted Alden told us from CFR this morning, we fail at retraining. Can we retrain these people? We can, and I, and I was listening to that, that piece, and, and I think it was right on the money, and, and I think that's what becomes important here is that uh, those factories are now able to and, – and, and again, I think this was one of – or this is one of the sort of uh, you know, points that I look at as the, the industry moves towards electric technology is you know, how many automakers have committed plants to battery electric vehicles? We've seen Volkswagen start to talk about it in Germany a little bit. Uh, now I think this is General Motors' opportunity to say we're, we're done with this half effort. We're going all in on this. I, I'm not sure how big that market is globally, but GM is saying, hey, if that's 10% of the global market, we want our share because it may be 50% like we see our friends at BNF talk about. This is half the market is electrification by 2040. Um, and, and to Mary Barr's credit, I think previous administrations at General Motors might have dismissed this as money-losing technology, and we're not going to get involved. It maybe not even made the bolt in the first place. Yeah. And I look at that as an engineering uh, sort of ex- and, and design experiment that says, okay, now we have this technology. Let's just scale it up into other products that we can sell. So, Kevin, for a lot of people, the last 24 hours is really, really significant. And that essentially what GM has done has said that here in the United States, if it's a sedan with an internal combustion engine, it is just not worth making here anymore. Now, if that's the conclusion, my next question will be, who's next and how big? What is the scale of what is about to happen? What is it? Right. Well, and, and look, Ford said this already. Uh, Fiat Chrysler did it without, you know, being so vocal about it. But, you know, uh, they've gotten out of the car business. I mean, they're 90% truck now. Uh, just that LX platform is the only thing they have left. So uh, the other two guys, General Motors is actually late on this. And if you look at GM's numbers, look, an 18% drop on the car side in the full year 17, another 20% this year. So I think the idea is that, you know, do we lose money on these products that are seeing dramatically declining demand, or do we lose money on the products that have this huge upside, uh, potentially because now you have governments in China behind them? Kevin, let me represent the President of the United States. Everything you're saying makes 110%. That was the next question. And I know John and I are on the same page on this. So you got to build something new. What is holding you back from choosing a spot in Ohio to do it? Uh, Other than the... the, um, 
the scale, right? I think I don't think there there is any reason why you wouldn't choose that spot to do it, other than you have a whole lot of installed capacity and not a whole lot of demand for those products yet, right? So that's one percent of the global market. It's one percent of the U.S. market. Um, you know, so so you're going to take uh, Chevrolet Cruze, for example. That's hundreds of thousands of units per year, and you're going to go in and you're going to build tens of thousands of electric vehicles. So it's certainly yeah. possible. It's just you're going to have capacity utilization that's going to be at, on the floor. Kevin, there are press releases that get sent to Wall Street. The one in the last 24 hours from GM was a press release for Wall Street. What's the press release for the White House? What does the president say and what is the response of this company? And I did, did not think I'd be asking that in, in the home of capitalism, but I am. Uh, what does the White House say back to this and what does the GM board and the C-suite say back to them? Well, and here's the interesting thing, Jonathan, to me and from my perspective, is that, you know, when you look at the White House, I think a lot of what you see is this really dramatic uh, move to spark a response, right? If you want change, it's going to have to be dramatic. If we go softly through this, nothing ever happens. And I'm speaking in very general terms. And I think that's General Motors' move here, is to say, look, we need to be here in the future. We need to be growing in the future. And for us to do that, we have to draw this line right here, right now, and make this transition. Is it painful? Absolutely. But if we're going to exist and be relevant in the okay. future, we have to do this now. Is this just a labor arbitrage? I'm talking like Steve Roach of Yale University. I mean, union used to make 150000 a year overtime, 130, whatever it was. And then Steve Ratner came in as car czar and we remodeled labor. I get it. I don't know what they make now, Kevin. Please tell me. But is it just still a labor arbitrage where the American auto worker makes too much for GM to make money on that next SUV or pickup truck? I don't think so, but but look at pricing in the industry, right? We talk about <clears throat> transaction prices being at record highs, but if you look at the technology um, and everything, not only in vehicle, but in terms of production, it's expensive to manufacture. Um, you know, and then if you look at declining volumes, it makes it it makes the equation that much more unbalanced. So. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think it's just the labor arbitrage. There's cost inflation all across the board there, and you have to adjust for it. Um, but at the same time, you know, there there's pushback against moving to lower cost to, to Mexico with that production there, and to say, look, we we want this 10% adjusted EBIT margin. The only way we're going to do it is if that part of the comp- that component of the of the cost structure is as low as it can be. Hey, Kevin, great to catch up with you. Really, really smart. Thank you so much for dropping by and giving us a call. Kevin Tynan, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Automotive Analyst as uh, GM announces some big job cuts and some big factory closures as well. From the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, John Farrow and Tom Keene, thank you for being with us. And now a definitive conversation on trade. Edward Alden wrote one of my books of the summer, Failure to Adjust, It is a deceptively wonderful, narrow, dense treatise on trade and what America needs to do. Let's get an update, Ted Alden. What does President Trump and what does America need to do on trade right now? Ooh, now that is that is a big question. I mean, you know, I I, I think the immediate challenge is to find some way to enter into serious negotiations with China. I mean, we are on potentially a very destructive road with China. And that's not to say there aren't real problems in China. There are serious problems, but we need to find a way forward on it. I mean, the positive 
thing with Trump is they were able to do a new NAFTA deal. There was a lot of storm and drong, but at the end of the day, they, they came out of it with a deal. I hope the same thing is possible with China. And then we've really got to focus on what's going on here in the United States and how to boost our economic competitiveness in a whole range of ways that we're just not doing at the moment. Did the jobs at GM, did they go to China? As the John Prine, the great John Prine of Chicago would say, the jobs went to Mexico? I mean, yes and no. I mean, no in the sense that, that you know, GM is not going to be exporting, it, certainly anytime in the near future, cars from China to the United States. So it's not a Mexico-type relationship. But China's obviously a much bigger future market for GM right now than the United States is. And GM is rationalizing in various ways in North America. They're not going to build these lower-margin products in the United States or Canada anymore. They're going to focus on next-generation vehicles. All that makes a lot of economic sense, but it doesn't create a whole lot of jobs for, for auto workers. And, and, and that's been the story for a long time, and nothing that the president has done or anybody else has done has changed that underlying economic reality. Ted, there was a really, really interesting article in the Washington Post yesterday following the GM layoffs that was titled, GM layoffs are another victory for capital over labor. What do you think about that line, Ted? You know, I think, again, for better or worse, that is true. I mean, you know, labor, even even the auto workers who've done better than most labor unions, have been losing for, for decades now. Um, the the owners, you know, the, 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 the folks who run GM and other companies have a lot of flexibility. They can produce anywhere they want in the world. They can decide to replace labor with technology. And at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot the unions can do to stand in the way of that. So I think this is the latest chapter in a very long story. I think that analysis is correct. Where the White House stands, though, Ted, the lines have become really blurred. Is this the White House for labor or for capital? Which one is it? That's a, that is a really good question. It wants to be the White House for both. So, you know, if you look at the new NAFTA, there are a bunch of provisions in there that organized labor is pretty happy with. I mean, unlike the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the FLCIO is holding its fire on this agreement, saying, you know, the unions might be able to support it. But at the same time, obviously, this White House has done a lot for capital. You look particularly at the big corporate tax cut uh, that was signed by the president in December of 2017, and the president's obviously very concerned about Wall Street. So, so, so far, it's trying to be both. Um, there may come a point in which it has to make a decision. This, uh, the, the GM example is a good one. President's obviously upset about this. He's upset about these factories closing. Whether he's going to do anything real to try to put pressure on GM, I kind of doubt it. Okay, well, what's he do? What's the pressure? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose one source of pressure is these auto tariffs that everybody's talking about. I mean, this investigation on whether the U.S. can can block auto imports on national security grounds is going to be delivered no later than February. And I suppose if, you know, if the United States puts in place steep tariffs on auto imports, particularly from Europe and Korea and Japan, that could put some pressure on companies to expand production here in the United States just to serve this market, even though it isn't a fast-growing market. I mean, that would obviously be a very drastic step, but in the short run might actually bring some auto jobs back to the U.S. Ted Alden, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Failure to Adjust. It's just a wonderful, thought-provoking book. Really smart stuff uh, from Ted. uh, A trade with the Council on Foreign Relations, Edward Alden. Particularly for our American audience, and to be honest, for myself as well, we need to triangulate. We need to do that on Russia and on Ukraine, 
and there's no better person to triangulate with than Andrew Wood. Sir Andrew is, of course, the former British ambassador to Yugoslavia and then served a substantial five years as British ambassador to Russia and is with Chatham House, uh, London. Sir Andrew, we are thrilled to have you with us today. It is 920 miles from Belgrade to Kiev. It's 1,400 miles from Belgrade, Yugoslavia, up to Moscow. And I bring up this triangulation because so many people say that Ukraine is a gateway to Europe. How do you translate that? How is Ukraine a gateway to Europe? Well, in, in the sense that it's a, a, an oil and gas transit uh, company, uh, country, rather, um, in the sense that it's got very strong roots in Russian uh, culture, and uh, therefore, in principle, those two countries should be in in, uh, effective communication, which they absolutely are not. They're not right now, and I believe martial law in force in Ukraine or or soon, but so much of this, to use uh, Joseph Nye, is power and interdependence. Is this just about the power of Russia versus the power of Ukraine, or can they find a common ground? Well, they they could, um, but that would really be up to Russia. I think one ought to be, in, in general, it's the Russians who, who are trying their best to stop Ukraine becoming an independent country, able to make its own uh, laws and, and uh, pursue its own interests, because they believe they have an innate right to uh, make Ukraine theirs. John John Mearsheimer of Chicago, out with a new book, has been heated and notorious about saying that the U.S. and the West extended too far east towards Russia. Did we do that with Ukraine? Is John Mearsheimer onto something that we extended too far to the adjacent geographies of Russia? I don't agree at all, but of course that is what the Russians themselves would say, because they regard the West as a threat. Um, if he's talking about the uh, um, extension of, of NATO in the last century, which is essentially, I suppose, what he has in mind, mm-hmm. then one shouldn't forget the um, fact that the countries that did join NATO all wanted to, precisely because they were afraid of what Russia might do, and precisely because Russia was in a state of quite considerable confusion at the end of Gorbachev and uh, uh, through through the beginning right. of, of Yeltsin. Is Russia in confusion now? It doesn't seem to be. It seems to have a plan. Are they in confusion, or what is the Putin plan? <laughs> I think for the things that the, the inhabitants of Russia would care about, he doesn't have a plan at all. That is, the economy is not doing well. He's not attending to their needs in health, education, infrastructure, and so on and so forth. He's spending a lot of money, however, on uh, military expenditure, precisely because he believes that is necessary to establish Russia as a, quote, great power, unquote. I think this will end in in, uh, uh, a much poorer Russia, and one which will become more unstable as the years go ahead. If you're just joining us, Sir Andrew Wood with us. He's a former British ambassador to Russia and also before that British ambassador to Yugoslavia with Chatham House. I guess there's been sanctions one, sanction two. I can go French on you, Sir Andrew. Sanctions trois. Are we going to get another set of sanctions here? As a result of this this immediate incident? Yes. 
Um, I wouldn't think so. What we are going to get is for it to be much more difficult for Putin to persuade other countries to to lift sanctions, which he badly needs. In In that sense, I think it'll blow back in his face. But it does depend on what he really wishes to make of this and what his purpose was in um, in doing it. It was only in September that similar uh, Ukrainian ships passed through the Kerch Strait, as they have every right to do under an agreement between Ukraine and Russia, uh, that this is their common territorial waters. And his reference to Russian uh, frontiers and rights is by implication at least, a claim to Mm -hmm. seize control of the whole of the Azov Sea. Sir Andrew, my colleague Pim Fox points out that within the Brexit battle, you have a Gibraltian view. I think a lot of Americans understand where Gibraltar is uh, in the Mediterranean. Gibraltar's not Scotland. It's not Ireland or Northern Ireland. It's Gibraltar. Can Gibraltar in, in the smaller geographies of the United Kingdom... Can they play a real part in this immediate Brexit debate? Well, yes. Um, I should declare an interest because I was born in Gibraltar and spent much of my boyhood there. So I I have an interest. Um, Actually, Gibraltar has been in British or English hands for considerably longer than it ever was in Spanish. Secondly, it's been an important base to... uh, your country and mine and, and others mm-hmm. during uh, wartime. Those, so I think there is a, a memory of loyalty from us to it in that sense. There's also the fact that the last time the population of Gibraltar were consulted about whether they wished or, or did not wish to have a co-dominion with Spain, 99% of them voted yeah. no. Well, within this debate of Brexit, and I'm going to ask you, I guess, a more general question with your esteemed work in diplomacy. What is the diplomacy the prime minister needs now to assist Tories to some form of decision and maybe drag your Labour Party into the decision as well? You served under Tony Blair and and John Major as, as well. There has to come a conclusion here. What uh, would diplomacy is necessary right now for your United Kingdom? Well, uh, the Brexit problem is a problem which is shared with other countries still in the European Union. It's a clash between the wish uh, buoyed up by the creation of the euro uh, as a currency to increase the amount of centralized control in Brussels with the help of the so-called Franco-German motor. Uh, A lot of countries have found the the pressure of that on them to change their policies here there, and and, and mostly in in economic terms, but they are policies considerable. And uh, we are now, as it were, facing that. I don't know how the parliament will vote on the uh, arrangement that our Prime Minister has negotiated, but the chances are pretty high that they're going to refuse it. After that, we'll be back at square one in one way, but in another we we shall be faced with a difficult choice, depending how the EU reacts. Exactly. Sir Andrew Wood, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there this morning. Greatly appreciated. The former British ambassador to Russia, 
Sir Andrew Wood. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.